How often do people change anything about their pricing? Not just the number, but anything about their pricing. VC-backed companies, they average one particular change every 2.8 years, which is really slow. I'm talking about anything, changing up their discounting strategy, changing their add-on strategy. Bootstrap companies, interesting. One and a half years. It's really, really interesting. And I think it's just because they tend to go for it. Like, trust me, it's still a very hard thing for them to do as I've you know, helped a lot of people with pricing over the years. But it is one of those things where they get into this like effort moment where they're like, well, worst case, our you know, revenue doesn't go up next month. That's fine, we'll be fine, right? Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. We are going to talk a little bit about what the most constrained amongst us um, can teach us in particular. And I know what a lot of you are thinking, right? Your business is awesome. You're amazing. Everything's great. Why do we need to learn anything, right? That's a very European stance, right? Is that, that's, that's, that's the vibe, right? No, just kidding. But the reason that this is really important, and it kind of set the stage here before we get into a little bit more about myself, a little bit more about what we're going to actually learn today. The thing you got to think about is every single market, it does not matter what market you serve, it does not matter what vertical you serve, it does not matter where you are located, everything is getting harder, everything is getting more dense, everything is getting more difficult. Um, and for those of you who know me, you know that I, I bring receipts, I bring data to back this up. So to give you a little bit of context, over the past 10 years, competition has increased 16x. So if you started a company today, you started a website today even, you would have 16 times the number of competitors that you did than 10 years ago, right? Now, because of that, and mixed with the fact that all of a sudden we haven't had a brand new marketing channel in five different years, CAC is also up about 130%. So that customer that might've cost you 100 euros 10 years ago, they're now costing you so much more. And this is agnostic of vertical, it is agnostic of location, we're seeing this across the board. Now, to give you another little kick in the face here, team tenure, for contractors as well as actual full-time employees is actually down by about a third over the past five years. So it's harder and harder to retain, retain talent. So you might be thinking, Patrick, we're amazing. We have a really good team. Well, that team isn't sticking around as much as it once was. And then you respond by trying to pay them basically 30% more, but it's not affecting those 10-year data points at all. And so when we think about what's happening in these markets, and this is independent of I'm not gonna say the word recession, um, independent of whatever happens globally, it's harder and harder to build companies, it's harder and harder to grow, no matter where you're located. Is this terrifying to you? Is this scary to you? Give me something, maybe a little bit. Philip, give me a little something. James, give me a little something. Okay, the point here is, and this is the thing we're gonna unpack, being very, very tactically excellent is now just the ticket to showing up. Long gone are the days of 15 years ago where you could kind of put out like an okay product and then ride the wave of all of these marketing and sales channels opening up. We now need to be good just to survive, let alone to actually thrive. And the reason we're talking about it in the context of bootstrappers is not only because we're on the bootstrap stage, but the main reason is, is that bootstrap companies, no matter their stage, where they are, et cetera, 
they are the ones that are the most resource constrained. It's hard no matter what your funding status is, but it's one of those things where this is the most difficult from a resource perspective for a lot of bootstrap companies. And so there's a lot of things to learn. Um, so let's learn from them. And I understand some of you are familiar with ProfitWell or Paddle. Who the heck am I? So Patrick Campbell, I was the founder of ProfitWell. I guess you're always a founder of ProfitWell. Um, I'm now the chief strategy officer over at Paddle. Uh, I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, my personal background's in econometrics and math, uh, which is code for having a lot of friends as a child. Um, most of them were spreadsheets, um, but that was okay. Um, I started my career, I worked in US intelligence in DC, um, and then I worked at Google, basically hunting bad guys and gals with data and then hunting money. Um, I'll let you figure out which one was money and which one was bad guys and gals. Uh, and then I founded a company called ProfitWell. And ProfitWell and Paddle, our core mission is basically to help subscription and SaaS companies run and grow automatically. Um, and that automatically is extremely important because when we say automatically, we're not referring to, oh, here's a WYSIWYG editor, here's some workflow tools. We're actually saying you plug us in and automatically you run your business, we take care of tax, we take care of growth, all kinds of fun things. Um, this isn't super important, but we have um, a Prefl metrics product. It's used by about 20% of the market right now. We study that data. That allows us to basically lower your churn, optimize your pricing. Um, and as was alluded to in my introduction, uh, in April, um, my life changed pretty dramatically. So we were bootstrapped for about nine years, uh, and then Christian bought a friend, basically, in me, um, and coming to hang out. Wow, the jokes are not landing, and that's really aggravating me. I'm just gonna point it out. I don't have to be here anymore, okay? No, I'm just kidding. So bought us and then paddle, they basically take care of that run side of the mission. But giving you this context, not to sell you, but to give you a little bit of ethos that like, I have been bootstrapping, that's why I look like this. Um, but in addition to that, um, it's, been, it's been an interesting ride where we have a ton of data that we can actually study. So we're gonna jump in, I'm gonna unpack a couple of things that I've learned, we've learned, and I think everyone can learn from bootstrappers, and then everyone's gonna be better. Does that sound good? Are you sure? Again, I can leave. No? All right, let's jump in. All right, let's talk about the sexiest topic in the world, documentation, right? Who here um, thinks documentation, wikis, notions, these types of things are important? Raise your hand if you think they're important. Okay, some of you are lying to me because we went out, we got a bunch of data, and we actually discovered that venture-backed companies, only about one in five basically have any form of documentation or wikis internally which you're like, oh, one in five, maybe that's good. But what was really, really fascinating is that when we coded this against bootstrap companies, we found that over half of them had documentation, right? And you might be wondering, like, why is this? Well, I think the really big reason for this is that when you're really resource constrained, alignment ends up being everything. And to kind of really take this point home, we as founders and executives, we have this like vision, right? We're like, everything's gonna be amazing, I'm gonna democratize this thing across this industry, right? We're crazy, that's really what's happening. We're like, this is the thing that's going to make us rich or this is the thing that we're just gonna like really attack and save the world through APIs or something like that, right? But we can't do it alone. So all of a sudden we're like, we're gonna hire some people and they're gonna be able to like understand the vision because like I'm gonna talk to them, right? And you know, all of a sudden I'm gonna hire more people and most of them are basically gonna get it because I said it once at an all hands, therefore everyone should understand exactly where we're going with our mission, right? And we're gonna have these stragglers, but like I'll go talk to that person in a reactive manner and this person, they just don't get it, we're gonna let them go, right? Now, in reality, this isn't how it works, right? This is really how most companies look, right? It doesn't matter your like venture backing status or whatever it is, 
but everyone's moving all over the place, everyone's not moving in the same direction, and then that affects your actual mission, right? This whole mission of democratizing whatever is basically not gonna go anywhere because as you get more people, those people need to move in a particular direction. So what's really kind of fascinating is that the best way to move people in a direction, the best way to kind of get this general direction moving forward, for better or for worse, is documentation. And I think the thing that we had kind of figured out at ProfitWell in particular, and, and Paddle was a venture-backed company that was good at this, um, we'll just put that out there, is what we ended up doing, and this is the hardest part, is really establishing what is our actual mission. And this isn't like, we're gonna make digital innovation and all this other stuff, but it was really like, why do we exist? We exist to grow subscription revenue automatically, right? It's a little vague, it's a little general, it needs a little bit of a description, but that helped our team and that helped our recruiting really understand why did we exist. And what was powerful about that is that we then tied that to a particular, what's called a mission metric. And that metric is if it goes up, basically that means we are pursuing our mission. And for ProfitWell it was, if we get more and more people using our free metrics product, we get more and more people using our retention product, et cetera, theoretically this subscription revenue number should basically go up. Now what was really powerful about this then was how are we going to get there? And this is what your team typically craves. They're sitting there and they're like, I think I understand where we're going, but I don't really understand how we're gonna go out and win. And for ProfitWell and as well as for Paddle, it was this whole concept of do it for you as well as be the most helpful brand in SaaS. These two guiding principles now allow us to filter a whole host of decisions basically through this framework to understand, well, we're gonna go that, do that initiative. Well, is that initiative helping our, us do it for our customers or is it helping us be the most helpful brand in SaaS? If the answer is no, then like, we need a really good justification as to why we're doing it, right? And I think the, the, the really powerful piece then was each part of the organization basically figuring out, well, in the context of this mission, in the context of these guiding principles, how is my organization going to win? So for ProfitWell, it was recur media. So we had a whole media arm, all kinds of fun stuff I'll talk about in a second. But then the most important part of this was defining what I like to call tempo, which was what is the expectation of that particular org? In the context of marketing, it was how much content are we actually going to be shipping? What are we actually going to do? Because when you start to combine all of these different things, I could go to Dan who led Recur and be like, hey, we, we said we were gonna do this thing, why didn't we do it? And instead of having all of these like fluffy conversations, I now go, I understand Dan's mission, I understand what Dan's gonna be shipping, I can hold him accountable to our particular mission. Make sense? Okay, I started with the broccoli, I know this is broccoli, okay? This is not the sexiest thing, but I guarantee you this is super, super important, all right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna chase it down with some cheese so everyone eats the broccoli. Does that sound good? Okay, cool. Alignment, it's how high-performing teams become a high-performing company, hands down. There's a bunch of other things that we could get into, but as a bootstrap company, we, we don't have a lot of time and we don't have a lot of money to basically make up for that lack of time. So this is something that really, really was powerful of us, including our particular um, kind of focus basically on how we invested cash. All right, who here has churn? A lot of you are liars, okay? Or you are all the greatest SaaS companies in the world, right? Um, fun fact, bootstrap companies, pound for pound, have better retention and lower churn than venture-backed companies. Don't believe me? I bring receipts, all right? Um, what you're looking at here are different pairs of companies at different sizes. So on the far left here, you're looking at companies that are about a million a year or less. 
on the far right, you're looking at companies that are about 10 to 12 million or more. And what you'll notice is each left hand of the pair are funded companies, and each right hand of the pair are those bootstrap companies, and the bootstrappers tend to have better retention, tend to have lower churn. Now, the reason that this exists is one, because there's a little bit of a moral hazard when you raise money, where you're like, grow, 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 sales, 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 marketing, 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 we'll worry about retention later, right? It's not quite that binary. But I think the other reason that this happens is when you're hiring a very, very like creme de la creme product leader, what ends up happening is they think about value in a very binary way. They say things like, well, if the product was valuable enough, if we had the right features, if we connected to the right segment, magically no one would churn, right? Everything would be amazing. But the issue is, is that when you think about this retention line, where on the far right here you have your advocates, these people love you, they're giving you good reviews, all that kind of stuff. And on the far left, you have the people who are talking shit about you, they're leaving bad G2 crowd reviews, all that kind of stuff. What most of the time really, really creme de la creme product leaders do is they talk about strategic retention. What are the new features? What's our target persona? What's the target ICP? Who should we not be going after, right? All of these things that have really, really long cycles to figure out if they work or not. And this is why you do need a really, really good product leader because they're the ones who over time are gonna fight every paper cut to basically make you in a really, really good valuable product. The thing that they miss though is all this tactical stuff where if you're a bootstrapped exec or a founder and you're looking at the P&L every month, all of a sudden you're realizing, oh my God, we're losing all of these customers to credit card failures. We're losing all of these customers to like actual churn. Like what are we doing today versus what are we doing over the next two to three years? And so what I think is interesting is you need both, but bootstrappers tend to focus really here and don't necessarily hire really, really great product leaders. It's a money thing at the end of the day, whereas a lot of venture-backed companies basically do the opposite. And so I think that there's a couple of things I'll go through tactically that I think are really powerful. I'm giving a full churn talk at 2.30 today if you wanna go really, really deep on this. But one of the biggest things I recommend to folks, especially right now, is optimize for term length. And what this basically means is you take your monthly customers, turn them into quarterly or annual customers, or if you're an annual-based shop, turn them into two-year contracts. It's actually a really, really powerful tactic right now, given the state of the world. But as you can see, as I've put these numbers up already, um, these longer-term plans just have much, much higher lifetime value. Um, but the problem is, is most of you only ask someone to get married for a year when they actually just sign up for the product. They haven't experienced the product, they haven't seen how cool you are, they haven't seen the value that you're gonna provide. So you have to go beyond that initial sign up. Um, there's a couple of emails, you could steal these, it's fine, or just use retain, um, does it automatically. But plain text emails, using a whole number offer, so one month free, two months free, that's where a lot of the power comes in here. And then make it so they don't have to go to the billing settings page to actually sign up. In SaaS, do this every 45 days, between two and 10 months of a customer being basically a customer. Once they're over a year, you probably don't need to worry about it because they're locked in, but that two to 10 month range is super, super powerful. Last little tactic on churn, cancellation flows. Um, we have this weird conception that when someone clicks this cancel button, we either need to like hold them hostage and make them call us and send us certified mail, or, and most European folks, not stereotyping, but a little bit, as soon as someone breathes on the cancel button, we have to cancel it, we have to get rid of it, right? In reality, you have about 18 to 30 seconds. Just trust me, we've looked at a million different cancellation flows. You have 18 to 30 seconds to learn from that particular customer. And we recommend asking two questions. They're not open-ended, they have actual choices. 
Why are you canceling? That one's pretty obvious. The non-obvious question, what did you like about the product? This is a really, really powerful question because your customers on this freight train concept are basically being like, I want to cancel this product, right? But if you ask them if anything was good, all of a sudden they're like stopping. They're like, oh yeah, I guess some things were good. And then based on their answers to both of these questions, I can offer a salvage offer, a pause plan, or I can just let them leave, right? These different options are super, super powerful. Just pausing for pictures. I feel like, uh, I don't know. Anyways, um, the impact, because I know there's a lot of critics, you can lower your cancellation rate by almost a quarter, right? If you don't believe me, here's the data. I always bring receipts, okay? Um, super, super powerful. Uh, okay, distribution, right? We all want more customers. Um, I think the unlock here, and you guys are gonna hate me because you've heard this before, but I have some data to hopefully convince you to actually do this. Buyer personas. Who here has heard about buyer personas before? You have read a Forbes article. That's basically what that means, okay? Everyone talks about buyer personas. Here's why they're important. Everything in your business, sales, marketing, product, finance, does not matter is used to drive a person to a point of conversion or to justify that product or that price that you're offering. Now, you all get this. This is, how, this is how it works, right? You have a human buying something. Maybe AI will buy something at some point, but not in our lifetimes, probably. But there's a person. I know you've heard this. Only one in five of you have buyer personas. Only one in five of you. And it's terrifying. It makes my heart hurt so much, right? Bootstrappers, two and five. So double, not great though, right? Not enough. And I've been talking about buyer personas, customer research, ICPs, all these different things for like 10 years now, and none of you still do it. And that's what hurts my heart. But I think it's because you don't understand the impact here. And this is correlative data, but it's really, really powerful data. So we went out and we looked at companies that had these things, ongoing customer research, quantified buyer personas, regular buyer personas. We compared them to folks who didn't have any of these things. And what we found, those folks who had personas, et cetera, they were growing about 10 to 20% faster than those who didn't. And you might be like, ah, eh, growth data, there's a lot of lurking variables. Well, CAC, 10 to 30% lower. Turns out when you know who the hell you're selling to, you can kind of go where they are and be more efficient in basically acquiring them, right? And then my personal favorite, NPS, this is baseline NPS, so NPS on average is only single digits. Those folks who knew who the heck they were selling to all of a sudden had a bunch of people, right? It's super, super important. Everything is just better. It is work and it's not the path of least resistance. It's kind of like, why do I wanna measure twice? I just wanna cut, like I just wanna go in and build the thing, right? Let's make it really easy. I have this template. I'm happy to send it to anyone. Just email me, find me on Twitter. Do not LinkedIn message me. That's where messages go to die. Um, but I'll send this to you. I recommend filling it out individually. So basically you and your co-founder, you and your members of your exec team, everyone fill it out individually. Then come together, review it as a team, and then debate one thing. I guarantee you if you debate one thing, the answer is gonna end up being, well, let's go find out. Let's go get some data. Let's go talk to some folks. Let's go figure that out. And I would argue if the solution is I know better or we don't need to do anything, go find another team. I know that's really easy to say, but life is way too short to work with people who don't want to win. It's super, super important. All right. 
Here's the other piece. On acquisition, bootstrappers tend to be scrappier. Um, I feel like I just said water is wet, but it's just kind of how this works. I think the thing that bootstrappers understand a little bit better, and I'm generalizing, is really what you're trying to do with demand gen, right? Demand gen, marketing, everyone's got their own word for it. But for a little bit of a refresher, at the end of this continuum, we have someone signing a contract, self-serve signing up, whatever it is. And then right before that, we might have sales or product-led growth or whatever we're calling it these days. And then before that, you have different intensities of prospects. You have someone who's actually raising their hand. You have someone who maybe looked at some contact or downloaded an ebook. You have someone who like, was thinking about the thing or looking at the review page of whatever you're doing. And then over here, you have people who just like, have thought about, I want to grow, I want the outcome that you're thinking about, right? Here's kind of the problem. Your goal is to make this river of leads move as fast or quickly as humanly possible to that particular conversion. And the reason that this is kind of problematic is because we've all heard of the funnel, right? Like top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, bottom of the funnel, all the things. HubSpot's trying to make it into a flywheel, but who chose them as God, right? Like, let's just keep it a funnel, I don't know. Anyways, the problem is, is all of the money, especially in a VC-backed company, goes to the top of the funnel, and then it goes to the end of the funnel. Sales gets all the budget, top of the funnel gets all the budget. And it's a little like where are the lines is a little bit, but like this is where all the money goes. This is also where the worst returns are. Sales productivity is going down, even though we have all these tools. Sales cost is going up, even though we have all these tools. Same thing with top of the funnel. CPCs are up, 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 up. Everything is getting harder and harder, and that means you do have to spend money there. But when we looked at this, when I was the only marketer and I was gonna like hire a marketing team, we started digging into this and we started realizing, what if we just made the middle of the funnel bigger? Wouldn't that be better? Because timing is such an important part of sales. Everything that we're structuring is moving quickly, moving quickly, moving quickly, and there's a certain percentage of leads that'll do that. But what if we like had a little place that people could hang out, right? And the first part of that was freemium. All of a sudden, freemium acts as a pool of users that you own the right to nurture over time. And when you own that right, all of a sudden timing becomes a thing where you can go, okay, well, the timing's not right right now, I'll reach out in 30 days. Like, you don't actually say that, but that's kind of the mindset, right? And that's really, really powerful. And this is where a lot of product growth stuff is coming from, but it's owning that right to nurture the lead and all the data is great. So CAC is up overall, CAC for freemium, is basically not going up as, as aggressively. And these are people who are actually paying, not just the free particular users. On top of that, retention's much better. So retention's going down overall. It's not going down as much for those freemium folks, right? And then NPS, NPS is going down overall. Like, everything's not as magical as it once was. But it's retaining that power, in particular, for those customers who converted from a freemium tier. Two types of freemium. You have forever free. This is like ProfitWell where basically you're upselling through some sort of cross-sell. So this is known as like a sidecar product that OpenView talks about. And then the other that you're probably more familiar with is like a faux free trial. This is where we give like, you get 10 visits a month and then once you're over 10, you have to start paying or you can wait till next month to get another 10. But freemium is that pool. A couple pieces of advice. Do not do freemium until you know how to convert leads to customers. You're just gonna cause a bunch of noise or if you have like a top 50 growth person, but if you have to ask if you have a top 50 growth person, you don't, um, just being real. Um, or, and is your funnel like that river flowing fast enough? 
So there is something that's really, really important still about that river, but you want to supplement it with this pool. Last little pool, this whole thing of inbound media. Um, so who here has watched or read a piece of content from ProfitWell? Some of you are lying. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's a lot of people, right? And we're a bootstrap company. Um, for those who don't know us, um, at Exit, we had eight different podcasts and video series. Um, we have six seasons of a show called Pricing Page Teardown, where I literally look at pricing pages with data and go, this is great, this is terrible, they should do this, etc." 60,000 people watch that damn thing a month, which is insane if you really think about it, right? So we went into this media game hard, mainly because you might be thinking like, oh, we do content marketing, right? Well, the problem with the traditional content marketing is you still need to do it, but the only reason it really exists is to provide signal in that middle of the funnel. Oh, they read two blog posts and downloaded an ebook, ping, lead score went, let's get it over to an AE, right? It's basically what you're trying to do with traditional inbound marketing. But when you're doing basically inbound media, when you're building shows, you're trying to get people to basically tune in every single week or binge all of that particular content, right? Which is a really good signal. But the big thing to kind of think about here is that inbound media acts as another pool. So all of a sudden, you're not ready to buy, but you're sure the heck aware that we do something with pricing. So the minute you start thinking about pricing, you're like, oh, maybe we should go talk to those folks. I don't know what they do, but they seem to talk about it a lot, so they'll know who to go to if they can't help us, right? And it's super, super powerful to have these pools because it fights against that timing that a lot of us are facing. And this is just a visual of it. Traditionally about marketing, it's a very hit-driven strategy, like that ebook worked or not, and then it's a long tail. With audience-based marketing, media strategy, you're basically growing that audience over time, which is really, really powerful. Is this going to cost an amazing amount of money? No, bootstrappers, constraints. What we discovered and why we went all in on this is that the average price of an ebook, like designing it, writing it, et cetera, costs about 10 grand. 13 episodes of a show, so one per week in a given quarter, costs about the same amount of money. Right now, our season's like, pricing based teardown, we got it down to maybe like $200 per episode. Um, so it's very, very inexpensive when you start to scale these particular things. And you also get a lot more touch points because all of a sudden what's happening, you end up getting different shows where some people binge everything we put out, some people they only tune into one thing at a time. Make sense? All right, I'm fighting the clock here. Don't worry, I know the clock is down. They said 30 minutes, you only gave me 20, so I don't know what's happening. So you tell me when we're in a problem area, okay? Cool. Where to start? Just start a podcast interviewing target customers. It'll turn into deals. You'll be surprised. All of a sudden, you'll sit there. You'll be like, oh, yeah, that's great. And they'll be like, oh, how can I help you? Oh, well, you know, we do this thing. If, you want, if you're interested, oh, yeah, I would be interested in, right? It's a little different way to approach folks. The other path is what we did, which was basically start turning each blog post into a video. It's the two easiest ways to start. But the biggest caution I give you on this, virality is not the goal. I think a lot of people think, like, let's be Mr. Beast. Mr. Beast is a very popular YouTuber. I linked into a question about Mr. Beast, and I had to explain that to a bunch of boomers. Um, that's me trying to be young. Um, I am not. But in B2B, it, the way I think people should think about this is if you have a webinar that gets 750 people each week, every week to tune in, that would be amazing. We would all be like high-fiving. That's basically what you're doing with content. So if we have a show that's like 1,000 people listening in every week, and it's the right 1,000 people, we'll do that all day because the CAC is very, very low relative to how much those 1,000 people are worth. All right, last thing, pricing. Who here loves their pricing? Who here thinks their pricing's great? That's the most honest response I've gotten today. Anyways, um, somehow, 
bootstrap companies who you'd intuitively think are worse at something like this because they're more scared because they don't have the money in the bank to make up for mistakes, somehow they're better at this. Um, it's shocking. So how often do people change anything about their pricing? Not just the number, but anything about their pricing. VC-backed companies, they average one particular change every 2.8 years, which is really slow. I'm talking about anything, changing up their discounting strategy, changing their add-on strategy. Bootstrap companies, interesting. One and a half years. It's really, really interesting. And I think it's just because they tend to go for it. Like, trust me, it's still a very hard thing for them to do, as I've you know, helped a lot of people with pricing over the years. But it is one of those things where they get into this like effort moment where they're like, well, worst case, our you know, revenue doesn't go up next month. That's fine. We'll be fine, right? I think the bigger thing is, is like, people don't know how to like, properly change their pricing. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a tactic here before wrapping up. Um, first thing, not a fan of legacying your customers, meaning like keeping them on old plans. I think it's a really cute idea when you're first getting going. Problem is you start to realize like, oh crap, these people need to pay me more or I need to get like infinitely more customers. And it was really hard to get the first set of customers. Like it's just going to get harder and harder. Um, and so I think like don't bind your hands. Um, most people use this as an excuse just to never change their pricing. Um, we use a lot of excuses not to change our pricing. Everyone's like, yeah, but like there's a downturn. It's like, yeah, but you had another excuse when there was an upswing. So there's always some sort of an excuse. Uh, in reality, um, just to speak on like recession type stuff with price increases, if you made it, meaning your customer continues to choose you now as of like the end of September or so, you've gone through the three traditional cuts that happened during a recession. Um, the first cut was already back in April, the second cut was during the summer, and then the last cut was basically in August. There might be another set of cuts depending on consumer data, but that's a whole other talk. Don't legacy your customers. Um, you should do your research, not going to have time to go through this. And then people who have a very large increase, you either have to stage those increases over the next couple of years or change the personalization that you do to actually communicate that increase. The messaging is key. Now, you all have to promise me you're not going to steal this. Because if you steal it, you're going to ruin it for everybody. You can follow the outline, just don't steal the words. And people forward this to me. So I know it will happen. And I, will, I can't do anything, but I will find you. Anyways, first thing, over the past year, we've done so much for you, right? And I'm going to be a little dramatic for effect. We've made you this much money. You have these features. You use it every day. I'm pulling actual data from their account and reminding them of what they've gotten from our product. For us to continue to make it product better for you, we need to raise our prices. It's all about them. It's not about you at all. They do not care about you. They don't. They care about their costs. They don't care about your costs. They don't care about inflation for you. They care about their prices, right? It's always going to be a shock. So we're going to go, but because you've been so loyal to us, we're going to raise prices on all those disloyal people that never bought. But because you've been with us for four years, you're going to keep your price for six, year, or six more months. That's like $600 in value. It's going to be awesome. Everyone else is going to pay the new price today. If you have any questions, let us know. We'll work something out. And then my personal favorite, pausing for pictures. P.S. If this materially impacts your business, let us know, we'll work something out. This is really powerful for basically everyone who's sitting in the audience today. If you believe everything that was said here, and then you see this, I guarantee you, you're not gonna be a stickler. You're like, I don't wanna pay more money, but they're right, we do get a lot of value, et cetera. They did add that feature we wanted, et cetera. This is also for people where it's actually materially impacting them, and then you can use your judgment. Most people try to negotiate with you. Instead, you can say, oh, don't worry about it. When you get back on your feet, we'll figure this out.
It's all about them. It's not about you. The age-old question. Are VCs worth anything? No, I'm just kidding. What do they get right? They spend money a lot better than everyone else. Hiring rates are much, much higher. Spend rates on sales and marketing, much, much higher. And that's the game, right? You're trying to go fast. You don't care necessarily as much about death in terms of your company. Super, super important. Um, they do grow a lot quicker uh, than bootstrap companies. That's the trade-off. They also die much, much more, right? Not them personally, but their companies, okay? This is not a horror show, if you will. So it's all trade-offs. You got to pick your poison. I don't think it's, I think the versus debate is always dumb. I think it's more about like what you're trying to get out of you personally um, and your company. But um, yeah, everyone gets some value. We still fired up? All right. Um, close this out. You got to cuddle with the chaos. This sucks. Like the next two years, it's going to be harder. Like it's going to be harder than the last two years. But the thing is, is that's happened basically every two years. This market has changed so, so much in the past decade, let alone the past three decades. It's just one of those things you got to sign up for it. And this is what gets us out of bed is like the exciting part of like, let's go, right? Um, if you have any questions, Paddock is on Twitter. It's my email address. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world. Want exclusive SAS content and actionable insights to grow your SAS? Join our community of over 36,000 SAS founders at sasdoc.com.